I don't know about you, but when I'm learning something new, like a new skill, it doesn't matter how many times I've read it or watched it on YouTube. The, I only really get good at something if I practice it. The same goes with skills that I've already got. If I've not practiced something in a while, I'll get a bit rusty. And I think most people are the same too. It goes with any skill or profession. So in a hospital or a healthcare setting, there's ongoing training to put clinicians in scenarios so they can practice their skills in real time. But to practice a procedure on a real person, that's probably pretty dangerous. And current methods of creating simulations to give doctors a chance to practice what they do is just heaps expensive, not scalable. So enter virtual reality in medical training to immerse clinicians in scenarios that feel like the real thing to give them the chance to practice their skills. But does it work? And what do people think? Is it as good as the real thing? Maybe it's better. Well, with me today is VJ and Nish from Vantari VR. And in this episode, we're going to talk about their journey as doctors turned tech founders, the opportunity for virtual reality in healthcare here and abroad, and why medical training might never be the same again. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Vijay Paul and Dr. Nishanth Krishnanathan from Vantari VR. Vijay and Nish are co-CEOs of Vantari and both founded the company back with their CTO Daniel in 2017. Vish has over 10 years of experience working as an MD primarily in emergency medicine, and Nish is a surgical doctor in New South Wales Health with over 10 years of experience in medical and surgery in metropolitan and rural hospitals. Hey guys, how are you going? Good, thanks. Pete, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on. Looking forward to exploring the world of virtual reality, medical training, and also your journeys too. So I appreciate you making the time. Firstly, we'll get to know a bit more about both of you, actually. So let's start. Vijay, tell us a bit more about you and and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I met Nish at first day of internship. But prior to that, we were both actually in Queensland for our medical degrees. So, you know, I'm of Sri Lankan background. You know, I moved to Australia when I was 12, did all of high school, undergrad and postgrad medical training here and basically moved to Queensland. I'm a Sydney boy, but moved to Queensland to do medical school and then came back and started internship in um, Bankstown Hospital or the Bankstown Network. This is now more than 10 years ago and actually met Nish first day of internship. So we have been great friends since then and worked together really well. I think we still hold the record for the most night shifts in the hospital. And basically, that kind of professional alignment and teamwork kind of really translated quite nicely when we founded Vantari in 2017. So Vantari is a virtual reality training for healthcare, and we founded that in 2017 alongside Daniel, as you said. Yeah, so it's been a great journey, but I might hand over to Nish to say a bit about himself. Thanks, PJ, and great to be here, Pete. Um, Super excited to talk about Vantari, but also our journeys and what led us to it, because I think a lot of the greatest tech I guess, comes from the biggest problems we notice in our profession. And yeah, like Vijay mentioned, I did my university in Queensland, but at Bond University, I never ran into Vijay at any social events, despite the number of times we would have attended various events with Crossover. So we managed to meet each other first day of internship, as Vijay mentioned, and did a number of night shifts together and noticed that we had just great alignment in terms of the way we thought about things, how we looked at problems, how we even solved them together. And 
it was a very natural thing. We didn't have to force it. Like if BJ was treating a patient, I'd just write the notes and vice versa. And it just led to what naturally happened in 2017 around some of the problems we noticed. And we can deep dive into that. I guess for me and what led me down the medical career pathway, I've got about 30 first cousins that are doctors and my mum's a clinician, my sister's a clinician, and it would have been a disgrace to do anything but medicine. <laughs> so um, over time, I think I was almost coerced, mentally, mentally set up to do medicine. So I think that free will of choosing a career was taken away quite early. And so doing a startup has given me, I guess, a different opinion on the way I see things, because I think clinical medicine can actually give you a whole host of careers. And I think for us now doing this, we see the other side and how important it was to be a doctor and then be, a, I guess, a clinical tech founder. For my parents, I think they're the hardest people to pitch to. So it gives me a good opportunity when I go see VCs with BJ because they'll never be as tough as my parents. <laughs> um, so that's just a bit about myself and I guess what led us to 2017, essentially. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think that's great that you've come from being on the ground, doing the night shifts, seeing things firsthand, and like you say, creating solutions to solve problems. So I'm really interested to know about, you know, the problem that you're solving for right now with Vantari and, and why you've decided to, you know, move away from doing full-time clinical work in, and jump in and do this. Vijay, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, every doctor, especially junior doctors would say that, you know, your clinical experience is quite variable, and really it comes down to where you are placed. So you might be a hospital X or hospital Y. It could be metropolitan or regional. And also within that hospital, say you're one of 20 or 30 doctors, your experience will still be significantly different because no caseload is the same. And you might see a variety of patients that you know your colleague might not see, for example. And your terms are also variable. So imagine now that as uh, you know, two junior doctors were doing night shifts, that at 3 a.m. in the morning, you get paged to a patient's bedside. And you might have to do a bedside procedure. So when we talk about bedside procedures, you know, those are things like even simple as putting in a cannula. So that's to give medications to the patient. Or something a little bit more complex, like maybe putting in a chest strain because they acutely have a collapsed lung or have fluid in their, you know, in their lungs or something like that. How do you prepare yourself for that? Now, in all kind of clinical practice, you would have had that variability. So your colleague might have done a chest strain just last week, but you may not have done one for six months. Or if you're really new, you might have done some workshops in medical school and then you had to do one. And obviously you're supervised, but you still haven't done it yourself. And you do under supervision, or you might observe one and then do one later on and so on. So really there's you know a lot of variability in that practice. And as a clinician, you want to be at the top of your game to do those kind of procedures. Now, Certain things are easy to kind of replicate in a way through YouTube videos or textbooks or even mannequin-based workshops, but they can't actually translate you into doing an end-to-end -end procedure of any given procedure, which virtual reality can do. So that's the problem that we're solving. We're solving the problem where there is medical error because you have variable proficiency, variable access, and variable kind of baseline competence of clinicians everywhere. And we know that 10% of all medical error is procedure-related medical error, and we want to eliminate that medical error. And that's what virtual reality gives you the chance to do, all the way from you know, simple procedures to bedside procedures to really complex surgeries. 
Nish, you know, thinking about the way that things would have been done before prior to using virtual reality, I imagine then a medical student would read through choirs of, you know, textbooks and then just perhaps practice on a mannequin or or just cross their fingers and then perhaps the first time they actually do a procedure is with a real patient. Am I somewhere in the, the right vicinity? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think a good medical student would use mannequins and uh, read through multiple textbooks and then the average one probably wouldn't have the opportunity to experience a number of those resources. So I think given that variability and BJ touched on it, it's important to standardize medical training and ensure we're all proficient and confident when we're treating a patient. Because at the end of the day, these are real lives. They're families, there's people that we may have crossed the road with, you know, you just don't know, but we're we're responsible for giving them the right amount of care. And as clinicians, I think that part is often missed because we're often in a rat race to reach a certain level of proficiency later down, whether you're a consultant, whether it's a rat race because of resources at the hospital, there's not enough beds and all the rest. So I think when you're at the midst of a stress level that goes on in healthcare, the importance of training is sometimes missed. And you know, I did urology, so I spent a number of years training in surgery, and then I went down the urological pathway. Vijay did emergency medicine, so he saw the sort of cold front of medicine and and trauma and all the rest, whereas I experienced the complex side of surgery. And there's a whole range of skills that you're required to know as you go through training. And I think you can practice on mannequins, you can use cadavers, you can use animal models. They've kind of moved away from that now due to ethical reasons. There's textbooks, there's YouTube videos, there's online resources, there's so much available. But then how do you tie it all together in a reasonable way? where you feel confident and comfortable when you're doing a procedure for the very first time on a real patient. And I think that's where VR addresses these things and the gaps around these modalities of training. So for instance, one of the most popular ways of training, and I'm not by any means preaching this way, is the traditional apprenticeship model, which is see one, do one, teach one. So you often see one for the very first time, and then you end up doing the next one supervised, you know, or sometimes you don't have the opportunity to have someone by your side when it's an acute patient deteriorating in front of your eyes and you just have to get started. So I think that's where the fear lies and we need to bridge that gap either from never having done one to finally doing one or in the case where you've trained in something but you've completely de-skilled over years and Vijay touched on it in a particular procedure but something that really stands out to me is a surgical airway. So it's an acute procedure, it's something you do when someone is struggling to breathe, they're decompensating in front of your eyes and the only thing you can do is to basically put a cut in their neck and help them breathe through a mechanism. So this particular procedure I learned in a course that's provided by the College of Surgeons. That course itself has a two and a half year waiting list. So you can imagine the long list it takes to actually get a spot. You then do it. And then I didn't have to do it till I was doing general surgery. And this is out rural where there's minimal support in the middle of the night. So you, you end up calling someone, but by the time they get to the hospital, it's 30 minutes. So you need to then make sure you are proficient. So imagine having to do a procedure that you haven't done in a couple of years. You're trained at a workshop, which has a two and a half year wait list. You then, in the worst case scenario, have to do it in the middle of the night. I'm like, clearly there needs to be a better system about the way we do this, right? Is it that we pull out a cadaver or a mannequin 20 minutes before midnight so we can do the procedure? Well, I don't think that's the realistic way that we need to move forward to future-proof training education. It's important we have a resource like virtual reality where we can jump in practice, get rid of some of that cognitive load and stress that occurs from procedures and then do it on the patient and deliver the best care. So I think there's a number of things there that you can see has issues with. And I've done procedures with VJ where often we're refreshing ourselves with a YouTube video and 
we think we can do better and we should be doing better because other industries have moved forward. And I'm sure we'll touch on it as this conversation goes where things like the aviation industry, where you know pilots are required to do 200, 300 hours on a simulator before they even get to fly their first jet. Well, why aren't we doing the same before we even touch a patient? And procedures, I guess, are the penultimate way of delivering care, right? Like we can discuss, take a history, do an examination, we can prescribe medications, but when we're finally doing a procedure, that is very hands-on and it requires a certain level of skills training that we need all of the modalities to tie together in the best way possible. Yeah. Makes so much sense. But building on that then, Nish, and thinking about, say, the aviation industry where you've got your flight simulators and you know what buttons to... I'm by no means professing to be any kind of expert in in what that training looks like. But then if I think, you know, from my own perspective, thinking about then applying that to a medical procedure where you've got to pick up things and cut things, like physical involvement and interaction with things. How does that translate to a virtual reality world in that kind of immersive environment? It's obviously not the real thing, but you're putting someone in that situation where they're pretending to do the real thing. Is it actually effective? Yeah. I mean, virtual reality, I think, has come a long way. It's really matured as a technology. I mean, in about 2014, it's sad to say when Oculus was uh, acquired by Facebook, it became this big, potentially overhyped piece of hardware where people thought it could do anything. It's going to enter our lives. It's going to revolutionize the way we did in multiple parts of our life, You know, whether it's consuming certain information, whether it's doing medical training, all the rest. So in terms of where it is now, I think it's in a much better position to actually be applied to enterprise-type applications. And so we're not talking gaming, entertainment, the sort of entry-level things where you can just consume and enjoy yourself, but this is to the next level. How do you use it as a simulator to then go and treat patients? So when you touch on virtual reality as a technology, I think one of the things it does really, really well is it addresses the cognitive load of doing a procedure. And this is particularly with what we do. I mean, it has multiple applications in healthcare, distraction therapy, rehab, all the rest. But let's just deep dive into what we do essentially with medical training. So the software itself, you know, the way we deploy it is it's hardware agnostic. You load up a computer, you select our applications, and then you choose a host of procedures that we have on the platform. So when you pick something like a central venous catheter, which is done in ICU, whether it's a chest drain done in emergency, you then pop on a headset and you're completely immersed. So you've got a virtual environment. I'm talking here as if no one's used a virtual reality headset, but if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So for us, you're in a theater environment, you can be in an emergency environment and so on. So you create that, you've got a patient, whether it's female, male, adults, pediatrics, neonates, and you get to do the procedure for us according to college guidelines or best practice guidelines. And it ticks off each step of the way in real time how you're going. So you've got that real-time sort of performance tracking mechanism. You've got the support of a virtual trainer guiding you. And let's now talk about what virtual reality does beyond the immersive factor. So picking up equipment. So all of the things we do in virtual reality is mapped to exactly how we would interact with equipment. So Vijay and I really focus hard on hand interactions. Like how is your hand positioned? How does it move in the space of virtual reality compared to real life? So everything we're training and learning in virtual reality is replicated exactly how it would be in terms of real life, whether it's doing a a sort of a minor procedure all the way to a very complex procedure, which we started to do more recently in cardiology. So if you can imagine you're learning the hand poses, you're learning the steps. So in terms of what to do when something goes wrong, what to do if a particular step you miss it, how do you react to it? What if your cut is longer than it needs to be? What if you've done a central venous catheter, but you've caused a collapse in your lung? Well, hey, I need to do a chest drain. 
if I do a chest strain and I can't get a chest strain in, hey, I can do airway management. If I can't do airway management, then we go back to the procedure I said, which is a surgical airway. So you get a whole ecosystem of procedures tying together. You get to replicate what happens in real life in an immersive fashion, which is extremely difficult to do, as you can imagine, in mannequins and cadavers. And the whole way of running a procedure and removing some of that cognitive load means that when you are finally doing it in real life, you don't have to be thinking about the steps. You don't have to think, hey, if I make a mistake, what do I have to do next? So you've completely removed that component from someone's, I guess, delivery of procedures. And we're talking 70% here of procedures are cognitive load and knowing the steps. So if you can remove 70% of the stress, then you've got that final 30%, which is your hands-on delivery of care. Now, virtual reality uses controllers, and it does have some third-party haptic gloves, which at the moment aren't exactly non-clunky enough to use for fine pieces of surgery and, and all the rest in terms of procedures. But what it allows you to do is at least address a bit of that 30%. So in terms of hand poses, hand interactions, and so on. And I'll let Vijay dive into that because he loves the hand poses. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of cognitive load, I think absolutely VR is nailing that right now. VR has also moved towards this all-in-one headset. So I think currently we use a laptop and a headset. But as technology grows, as you can imagine with phones and all the rest, you've got this headset that can absolutely deliver enterprise-type applications, especially in healthcare. So cool. Tell us more about the hand movements and that other kind of 30%, VJ. I don't know how I became the love of hand poses, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's basically, I guess, a way of saying that the technical component of the procedure so you might imagine you have to hold instruments in a certain way because that's more technically accurate, A, or B, more practical to do kind of the very finicky movements or fine movements for a given procedure. And so that means it's important where you grab it, how you grab it, like a scalpel or a tube or gauze or whatever, and then how you do that procedure. So for example, like you were asking about what's the translational component of actually doing the real life thing in the software, is that in real life, it is important what angle you enter the body, for example, to access a vein. It is important to what depth you travel. It is important then as you're holding it, you're able to apply traction or something. So these are all important learning components that you have in real life. Now, how do we do that in virtual reality? Well, we actually translate it completely to be faithful to physics. So there's actually coding involved in making it behave as if it has real world physics. So the way that you hold the needle and you puncture the person would translate as if it was in real life and you would go to the right depth and you would do the right angle. And if you don't, you fail as you would in real life. And the instruments themselves, I mean, we take a lot of care that they behave as though they would in real life. So if you picked up a tube, it would wiggle about as it would in real life. So it won't just be some random stationary thing that doesn't have movement. So I guess that's kind of like why we think about it in terms of that technical ability translation. So it's really important to be faithful to that and where you can have a very high level of attention to detail to that piece. Love it. That makes so much sense. I'm, I feel so much more across virtual reality, particularly in the medical training space. We've covered it a few times on the show, but that makes so much sense about when you split it up in both the cognitive load and then the actual doing aspect of it. The cognitive load aspect alone takes up such a, a big component of it. And thinking, you know, it's great in concept and the theory around it, but this is being used in hospitals on a day-to-day -day now and in training settings. VJ, tell us a bit more about, you know, in a real world. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting that's actually being used in real life. 
you could imagine, you know, we had this wonderful idea in 2017 and obviously, you know, you start developing a software and to actually see clinicians use it, that's really amazing. So I might touch on a couple of good ones is, you know, in the anesthetic department at Phoenix Stanley Hospital. And there was an article about it a couple of months ago. So essentially there, the anesthetic department, you know, was doing a randomized control trial using our platform compared to traditional modalities, but they were also using it within the department. And one of the procedures we have is a chest strain. One of the anesthetists or the anesthetic fellow ended up actually jumping onto our platform and doing the chest strain. You know, this is total coincidence, not a made up story. And haven't done one for a while. And then was on the platform doing the procedure. Like, oh, it's nice, you know, but when would I do a chest strain? Like, I barely do a chest strain. Literally two weeks later, had to do a chest strain. So these are the amazing real-world examples and actually to see your platform having that kind of effect. And later on, we hear that story and he actually um, talked for the article was about how he felt so much more confident, so much better, you know, so prepared as opposed to if that hadn't happened and that was a total coincidence. So this is the kind of stuff that we know anecdotally, but you're starting to see that the data is coming, the sense of, actually measuring what that looks like, but you are starting to see those kind of case studies, which are just amazing. So that's one great example. And the second one, for example, is uh, Nepean Hospital. Uh, I would say they're implementing it for another procedure called the central venous catheter. And it's basically a part of a curriculum that's designed to get everyone onto a baseline level of competence in that procedure. So isn't that awesome to actually have it as part of an integrated curriculum in a department? So these are the types of things that we're able to do. You know, I mean, we're across four tertiary hospitals nationally now and obviously more in the pipeline. So these are very exciting. Amazing. And thinking that that's great to hear, you know, some success in Australia, but I imagine this type of technology niche has application globally as well. Is there any reason why it couldn't go outside of Australia? Yeah, I think really lucky that this particular technology is extremely scalable. You know, the way we do training is very closely aligned with the guidelines that are in the UK and the US. So I think Australia has a very robust training framework. It really prides itself in the way we deliver training. It's always looking at new and innovative ways. And I think COVID almost brought this whole conversation forward by like five or 10 years because some of the things we wanted to do, we just weren't prioritizing as much because we thought the way we were doing it was adequate to a certain degree. And having thought about how can we improve it when COVID hit, it's like, oh, we can't run sim workshops. We can't do you know, the same training on mannequins, you can't have as many people in the same room. Like, how do you work around this, you know, and then still deliver the best care, especially when ICUs are getting flooded, especially when we have to deal with high risk patients that require multiple levels of care. So to go back to your point, completely scalable. And I think for us, it's trying to grow the technology and the platform, and even the company to address a lot of the procedures that are required for clinicians fundamentally and foundationally before they even become specialists. So we're not talking about the orthopedic surgeons. We're not talking about the neurosurgeons. We're talking about what do they do in the first three years as core training, or if they go into some of the specialties which have those procedures more commonly done. So I'm talking things like critical care. So emergency medicine, ICU, anesthetics, where there's a large crossover of procedures. And it may not be known, but you know a third of all resource utilization in healthcare is critical care. And one third of all patient flow into hospitals is critical care. So, you know, a large amount of resources going towards these three specialties, as well as junior doctors and training them, hey, Vantari can really address, you know, some of the gaps in making them proficient. 
And then we look at things like regional and rural learning. How do you do it in the midst of COVID or post-COVID, right? It's already been challenging. Well, hey, virtual reality can really help you digitally deliver training to remote centers. The big vision for us in, say, five years from now, and we don't have as much control over this, so fingers crossed it gets there, is that it is an all-in-one headset and we can actually deliver training to clinicians directly. So this means clinicians and students can learn before they even step foot in a university or a hospital and gain the proficiency and confidence they require before they even treat a patient. So if we can train people at home, it means that we can basically deliver training all around the world to whoever it may be, whether it's a first world geography or whether it's a third world country that requires training to their level as well. So I think if we can really impact and change people in the way they do that, then hey, we can make a real dent in medical error. And it only takes one mistake to completely change things. And I'm not going to name hospitals here, but we've seen hospitals where people have left a guide wire in a patient after a central venous catheter. We've seen where they've given the wrong anesthetic through an epidural. And it only takes that one mistake for them to completely overhaul the way they do that training. So why wait for an error, because it only takes one error for you to change things. Let's be proactive. Let's look at ways we can augment current training methodologies with an aim to eventually have it as a mainstay of delivering training. So I think it's really crucial that we start thinking about these things. So crucial. And that's a great vision for the future and also important issues to address right now too. But Vijay, thinking about then say, those in a hospital that might be responsible for training, thinking about virtual reality, but potentially it seems a bit too far out of field for either themselves or for the clinicians that might be using it. Is there any advice you can provide to those that are looking to bridge their way across to something a little bit more innovative and forward thinking like VR? Yeah, sure. So that is a really interesting question. And in the general world, when they talk about enterprise companies, and if you consider a hospital an enterprise company or a customer, you might think about their technology transformation readiness, right? So it's a way of saying, are they progressive enough to A, accept the technology because they're innovative, but also from a workflow perspective, do they have the structures in place to then integrate the technology? Even if they had the appetite, do they have the workflow or the infrastructure in place to be able to get that in place? So it's very nuanced in that way. And Interestingly, I think our experiences have been kind of quite varied and unexpected and sometimes wonderfully unexpected in the sense that we might think, oh, hey, this hospital is very advanced and therefore would adopt this technology. But similarly, there might be another hospital that might say, well, okay, we have these sort of mannequins and these things that are kind of in disrepair and we might have to replace them. And their infrastructure for that training might not be as amazing as they think. You know, we're not ready for virtual reality. But actually, some hospitals are trying to get, you know what? Why don't we adopt virtual reality? Kind of leapfrog this component and actually get what we think is ideally the gold standard or the emerging gold standard. Why do you want to renew something that is slowly becoming displaced or may become displaced through evidence or as the new gold standard? So that's been really exciting because you can never tell going in which hospital has which kind of technology readiness, even though from an external perspective, you might really think about it and say, hey, this hospital is this, this hospital is this. So what I would really say is it's about the need. And I would challenge that no training hospital anywhere in the world 
you know, much less Australia, doesn't have a need to improve their procedural training. They do. So the onboarding piece, the acquisition piece of VR hardware, that's actually very simple. I mean, we bundle the VR hardware. That's very simple. It arrives in your hospital. It's fine. The onboarding is, you know, we supply all the onboarding. And it's like, you know, a half a day session and then you get your project leader on and then it's a cloud hosted software. So you don't have accessibility issues. You know, everyone knows how easy it is to have a Netflix subscription and use it. This is that simple that you just have a subscription and you're able to use it. We've actually really taken away loads of the obstacles that you might have in your mind as how this would be very difficult to integrate. Actually, they don't exist. It's only when you get to know the technology, get to know how Vantari deploys it, it's actually closer to you in terms of accessibility than you think. And the other thing is, because all we need is a live internet connection, like we don't need to be integrated in the internet. We don't need any of the e-health kind of deep integration that other things need. We don't need any of that. So in fact, getting this across the line is even more easier than any other kind of enterprise software that a hospital might look at getting on board. So really interesting way to think. If you're open to the conversation, I think you'll understand that it is closer than you think. So thinking about different stakeholders within the ecosystem when it comes to technology and healthcare, obviously hospitals and training hospitals are particularly important, but is there anything else you do with other stakeholders like medical device and pharma companies? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for us at the moment, we're at four hospitals, one university, and we've actually partnered with a couple of medical device and pharma companies. And there's a real value proposition for the device and pharma side as well in terms of stakeholders. Essentially, we are using their equipment in virtual reality to train clinicians. But more importantly, a lot of their equipment are complex. A lot of the procedure are complex. So if it's something as nuanced as a mitroclip in cardiology or a right heart catheterization or something in a whole different domain, it's crucial that they actually train clinicians well in that procedure and on that equipment. So virtual reality can actually address the pitfall and challenges that have come out of COVID, essentially getting people access to that equipment or getting people out to simulation workshops, all the things we already touched on are something that the stakeholders in terms of device and pharma are also finding challenging. So you've got that clinician-facing side, then you've got the internal reps side of it as well. How do you train staff to be proficient at procedures? How do you train staff to handle equipment adequately so then when they step into a surgical environment or a hospital environment, they are as proficient and confident as possible? Right now, we can't have as many people in the same room at a hospital. The device rep is also missing out on that experience. So I think there's a whole array of procedures and elements that virtual reality can address for that domain as well. The one thing I might actually add is that um, so all this time when clinicians are coming to the end of their training, say if you're a surgeon or an interventional cardiologist or something, and you want to go learn about this new piece of tech and this new procedure, you actually have to go overseas to do a fellowship where there's a center that's actually doing that and they're doing a high volume of that. Say in the US or in Canada or wherever, or the UK, you can do it here. Like you can reproduce the entire thing and have it in a virtual reality module so that you can actually do kind of the end-to-end procedure of using a really new emerging device that has emerging evidence that is superior to something else that you're doing. You can actually do it. Isn't that an amazing opportunity? So you don't have to wait for these overseas fellowships where you have to go and spend two years to come back and actually implement in the posture and healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. 
Love it. Look, guys, I'm going to put the details for Vantari VR in the show notes of this episode with your website and also a link to your directory listing on the Talking Health Tech website. You're in the Talking Health Tech community, so I'm sure members will get in touch if they have any questions, but also we'll put your contact details for anyone else that's keen to connect to. Nish, VJ, I really appreciate making the time. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, Thank thanks, Pete. Pete. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Go make it happen.